Okay, good. All right, let's do it. Well, good morning. Welcome back to study school. It's a particular joyous morning for me because I have officially finished another semester at the Master's Seminary. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So we ended the week before Thanksgiving in terms of classes, but I had some assignments that were still due afterwards. So those are all in. Grades will come in later, but I praise the Lord that that another semester has been finished. And I thank you for your prayers. I know it's been on their prayer sheet to pray for me and to pray for Emma while we're here. And I really appreciate your prayers. And I believe the Lord has answered those prayers. But we're continuing on today in the book of Exodus. Today's lesson is on how God displays his power. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at how God sovereignly protected, but also how he raised up a special deliverer, Moses. But today we're going to see how God's deliverance through that deliverer actually unfolds. Again, this is going to be more about God, though, rather than it is about Moses. We're looking at the mighty plagues that God sends on Egypt. Now, we're covering a lot of ground in Scripture today, Exodus 7 to Exodus 10. So we better get moving. Much of it's going to be in summary fashion. We're going to start with Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh, one of his confrontations, and then we'll walk through the different plagues, the first nine anyways, and consider their significance. So let's pray and we'll get to it. Our gracious Lord God, thank you for all the things that you provide. And yet, Lord, just so conscious lately of how we do not think rightly about you. Even, even those who claim to know you, even we who claim to know you, we don't often think of you as you really are, or even close to as you really are. But this passage today, God, I know it's to help us see more of who you really are. You are a holy and powerful God, and I pray that that would come across as I, as I seek to explain your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know if any of you have what are called vanity plates on your car, a license plate where you actually get to pick the message. You get to pick the letters and the numbers that appear there. But I recently read a news story about a Kentucky man named Ben Hart who chose for himself a special license plate for his car. The license plate reads, I am G-O-D. I'm God. The Kentucky Division of Motor Vehicles actually denied Ben Hart's request to have this license plate back in 2016, deeming the plate as, quote, obscene and vulgar, unquote. But Hart filed suit over what he considered to be a violation of his First Amendment rights, his freedom to speech and freedom of religion. And assisted by the American Civil Liberties Union and the Freedom From Religion Foundation, Hart won his lawsuit on November 14th of this year. So soon, if not already, Hart is out there on the road with his license plate proclaiming for all to see that he is God. Now, even if Hart is within his legal rights, to have this plate is not his action filled with pride and impertinence. I mean, how can someone have the gall to announce, whether he's joking or not, that he is God? Who would dare challenge and blaspheme the true God in this way? Yet Hart's hubris is nothing new. In fact, it's in all of us, isn't it? Every time we sin, what we're really doing is challenging God and exalting ourselves by saying, I'm going to do 
what I'm going to do. Yeah, I know what you say, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to decide for myself what is good. I'm going to be God. You know, sin, it makes us so that we're not much different from Pharaoh in the scriptures, who also directly challenges God. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, after Moses and Aaron initially deliver Yahweh's message to Pharaoh that he must let the people of Israel go, let them leave Egypt, this is Pharaoh's response. Exodus 5, 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Now that's pretty brazen. But isn't that the same attitude of every sinful heart? I'm sorry, Yahweh who? Yeah, I'm just going to do my thing. I don't know this Yahweh character. Through sin, our hearts exhibit the same boastful pride as Pharaoh or this Kentucky man. That same divine challenge, even if our challenge happens more secretly within our hearts. But will God abide such provocations? Will God just shrug his shoulders and move on? Will God not care whether he receives the honor and glory that he is worthy of? In many ways, the account we're looking at today is an answer to these questions. The record of the plagues of Egypt is all about showing the power, the holiness, the glory, and the sovereignty of God over all the earth and over all its people. We see directly fulfilled in this account what we read in James chapter 4, verse 6. James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This account is written to show us that the one true God is one that we must take seriously. There should be a holy fear of this God. We should not dare to exalt ourselves before him, but we are instead to run to him as our Savior, as our Lord, as our shelter. We may get away with stubborn pride in the short term, but it is eternally ruinous to oppose God. And yet how wonderful it is to humble yourself before God and have him be your God and even fight for you. These are the things that we're going to see today. Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, verse 28 is where we're going to pick up our account. And let me summarize what's happened between where we were last time at Exodus 4, Exodus 3 and 4, and where we're going to be today. After Moses returns to Egypt and proclaims God's salvation plan to the Israelites, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and they ask that Israel might be granted leave to journey three days into the wilderness and hold a feast to God. That's actually an initial request that's pretty mild. But Pharaoh, <clears throat> Pharaoh not only refuses to let the Hebrews go, he uses the occasion to accuse the Hebrews of laziness and decides to make their lives even harder. Pharaoh decrees that the Hebrews will no longer be provided with any straw for making bricks. The Hebrews will have to find and gather straw for themselves, but they have to make the same number of bricks as before. If they don't, well, they will be beaten. And this is what happens. The Hebrews, therefore, complain against Moses and Aaron for bringing this new trouble on them. And Moses, for his part, he cries out to God. Moses asks God, why, why did you do that? That's not deliverance. 
You haven't brought anything to this people except trouble. Once again, God was doing something Moses didn't expect. But God assured Moses that everything was happening according to God's plan. Moses then tried to encourage the people to trust God, but they wouldn't listen to Moses. Exodus chapter 6, verses 9 to 12 says that they would not listen to Moses. Now we're resuming the text where God sends Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh to confront him again. But we're going to look at now Exodus 6, verses 28 to chapter 7, verse 13. Let's go ahead and read that passage. Now it came about on the day when the Lord, that is Yahweh, spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, I am Yahweh. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before Yahweh, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it as Yahweh commanded them. Thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, and you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as Yahweh had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Let's start with basic observations of this passage. Notice how the conversation in verse 29 with God and Moses begins with the declaration I am Yahweh. It's only after God gives this declaration that he then gives a command to Moses. Notice Moses' response in verse 30. He says, I'm not skilled enough to have Pharaoh listen. I'm not eloquent of speech. What does that remind you of? So what he said back in the burning bush, he's still making that excuse. Notice back in chapter 7, verses 1 to 2, God describes the approach that Moses and Aaron are to use before Pharaoh. Moses, God says, will be like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be like Moses' prophet. Moses will speak God's words to Aaron, and Aaron will speak the same words to Pharaoh. Now, do you think that Aaron was allowed to deviate at all from Moses' words? No, certainly not. He would be commissioned to say exactly what Moses said. 
Aaron, as prophet, had to speak the word exactly given to him by his God, figuratively Moses in this case. Now, I stress that arrangement because, as one of my theology teachers has emphasized to me at the seminary, right here at the beginning of chapter 7 is really a model of how prophecy, according to the Bible, operates. You have a person who receives a word from God, and he gives that word exactly. There is no fallible prophecy in the Bible, no erroneous prophecy, no word of God mixed with error, no tentative declaration if you're a true prophet of God. If you actually are a prophet, you say exactly what God gives you to say. That's what it means to be a prophet. If you deviate from that perfect message or you prove to be unreliable, the Bible doesn't say, oh, you know, he was just a, like a, a minor prophet or he messed up. It says you're a false prophet. So that's just an aside. This is a model of what biblical prophecy is. Now, notice another declaration from God at the beginning of verse 3. God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God has told Moses and Aaron what they must do, but then he tells them that they will not be successful, at least at first. And why is that? Because God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. But what does it mean to have a hard heart? Yes, to resist God, or how else can we describe it? Yeah, to be stubborn, to be rebellious, to be unwilling to listen to correction or exhortation or rebuke. This is what it means to have a hard heart. Now, God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will cause Pharaoh to be stubborn and not listen to Moses and Aaron, not do the right thing. And notice why God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Verses three and five. He says, that I may multiply my sons, or my signs, my signs and my wonders, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders. I'm going to harden his heart so that I can display my incredible supernatural power. I will send great judgments and bring about a great deliverance of my people in the land. And verse five, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Pharaoh says he doesn't know who Yahweh is. God is going to show Pharaoh who Yahweh is, and he's going to show all Egypt, and he's going to show all Israel. Now, Aaron and Moses obey God, and they go before Pharaoh. God tells them to perform a miraculous sign before Pharaoh when they get there, and they do so. Notice the end of verse 10. Aaron's staff becomes a serpent, a snake. But notice Pharaoh's reaction in verse 11. Pharaoh doesn't go, wow, you men must be from God. Instead, Pharaoh asks his magicians, his wise men and sorcerers, to see if they can perform the same miracle. And amazingly, they are able to do so. Their staves also become snakes. And the text says they did this by their secret arts. But notice the end of verse 12. It says that Aaron's staff ate up the staves of the magicians. It ate up those snakes. So this is a compounded miracle. We have an inanimate piece of wood that becomes a snake, and it eats other snakes. Not just one other snake, but multiple other snakes. And then presumably that staff became a piece of wood again. So this was truly a wondrous occurrence. But notice Pharaoh's reaction in verse 13. It says, his heart 
was hardened. Now that's a sentence in the passive voice. That's where the subject receives the action rather than does the action, was hardened. It's not said specifically in verse 13 who hardened Pharaoh's heart. With these observations, let's now consider some interpretation questions. First, why does God begin in verse 29 of chapter 6 with a declaration about his own identity? He starts off by saying, I am Yahweh. Why? How would that relate to what God says after that? Right, this is to remind Moses of the basis for everything that's about to happen. Obey these commands. Look forward to what I'm going to do because I am Yahweh. Actually, this has everything to do with Moses' objection in verse 30. He says, I'm not skilled of speech. Moses, did you forget I'm Yahweh? It is God who's going to, it is God for being who he is that's going to make everything possible in this great deliverance and all these mighty acts in Egypt, even using Moses. Another question, who hardened Pharaoh's heart in chapter 7, verse 13? It says Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but who did it? The answer must be that God hardened his heart. And you say, well, verse 13 doesn't say that. That's true, but look back at verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So when we see Pharaoh's heart be hardened, we know it's God. Now, of course, Pharaoh is in there too. And we'll say more about that in just a second. But we have to ask, how is it right for God to harden Pharaoh's heart? I mean, after all, as a good God, as a holy God, as a loving God, doesn't God love when people are righteous and obedient? James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says that God does not tempt anyone. He does not lead anyone into sin. Abraham, in Genesis 18, 25, Genesis 18, 25, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? You are the judge, God. Shouldn't you do everything righteously? So how can God cause Pharaoh to have a more stubborn and more disobedient heart when God is good and when God is righteous? We've come again to the so-called problem of evil. How can a good and holy God use and ordain evil in the world? We've talked about this question before, but as it's relevant, again, let me say a few things again briefly about it. The answer from the Bible to the so-called problem of evil, is that God somehow in his transcendent greatness is able to ordain evil in such a way that God is not chargeable or blamable for it. God is able to ordain evil in such a way that God is not chargeable or blamable for it. God never forces anyone to be sinful or stubborn. He does not coerce people in that way. Evildoers even we ourselves, whenever we sin, evildoers choose to do evil freely because they want to. And thus, they rightly bear the guilt. God's sovereignty does not absolve a man of his responsibility. But we must understand everything is under God's complete control. Absolutely everything. God ultimately is the one who brings about 
anything that happens in this life, whether good or evil, whether prosperity or trouble, it ultimately all comes from God. Now, we won't be able to fully wrap our minds around this truth in this life, but we can grasp it in a basic way. And I think I've mentioned this before, but if you want to hear a little bit more of an in-depth treatment of the so-called problem of evil, I say so-called because it's not really a problem from a, from a biblical perspective, please look at Mike Riccardi's blog posts or audio messages called God and Evil, Why the Ultimate Cause is Not the Chargeable Cause. You can find this at thecripplegate.org or gracechurch.org. Actually, if you just type that name into Google, Mike Riccardi, God and Evil, Why the Ultimate Cause is Not the Chargeable Cause, I'm sure you'll find it. But he's done a number of messages. He's, as I said, written an article and also done some messages at Grace Community Church, which have been recorded. And it just as an excellent, excellent treatment of the issue of God and evil. So you can find more there. But let me just say right now, God's absolute holiness, yet absolute sovereignty, even over sin, is what the Bible teaches. And we can see this even in Paul's statement in Romans 9.18. Romans 9.18 Paul says, so then he, that's God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God is able to harden people in sin without being blamable, without being chargeable for it. He often does this as an act of judgment. He is right to do either one according to his good pleasure, according to his glorious purpose. He is not evil to do so. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both true from the Bible. And why does God do whatever he does? What's the ultimate motivation for God? It is to show forth and enjoy his own glory. God is committed to his glory. God is committed to his own greatness. And that's why he does what he does. And that's exactly what we see in our passage in Exodus, isn't it? God says, I'm going to harden his heart so that I may show forth my signs and wonders in Egypt. It's about my glory. And of course, God's glory is our good. It is the good of his people. He has a kind purpose tied up in showing forth his glory for those that belong to him. Now, here's another question. How were Pharaoh's magicians able to replicate the miracle of the staff turning into a snake. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And I think you've given that answer perfectly, Roy. It could be, just as you said, it could be just illusion. It could be the same kind of activity that we see magicians do today. These were skilled uh, and crafty men. They were knowledgeable about very many things. And so they could have employed some of those tricks, those techniques that they had come to learn. Egypt was famous for its snake charming. Perhaps they had 
manipulated snakes in such a way to make them look like staves and then cast them forth as if they were staves that became snakes. Or, as you said, Roy, this could have some involvement of demonic power. We certainly know that demons do some pretty remarkable things in the scriptures in terms of affecting a physical person. There was a demon that caused a woman to be bent double. There was a demon that caused a little girl, a slave girl, to be able to predict the future, to be able to give knowledge that she wouldn't otherwise be able to know, and other things. So, as this is a pagan culture, just as you said, Roy, it could be that they were using, they were giving themselves over to occult power, or it could even be a combination. As we see in the book of Revelation, there is this connection between deceptive signs and demons. There's something deceptive about this, and it may even involve occult power. But the most significant part of however these magicians did what they did was what happened to the staves that they cast forward. What is the significance of Aaron's staff eating up the staves and the magicians? That's right. This is about God's superiority, his supremacy over whatever they are able to do. Whether it's their tricks, whether it's even the power of Satan, God is greater. Even the devil is God's devil, as Luther says. He's on a leash. We saw in Job. He can't do more than what God allows him to do. You cannot oppose God and be successful. He is the Almighty One. And that's underscored even at the end of this miracle. And we'll see that underscored through all the different plagues that are about to unfold. And that's what we're going to turn to now. We're going to survey the first nine plagues of Egypt. These first nine displays of God's great power and judgment. We'll save the tenth, the climactic plague, for next time. Now, this is a lot of text, Exodus 7 to 10, and it's too much for us to read and analyze in full right now. But we are going to look briefly at each plague. And as we do, I want to notice certain pieces of information. And I have them there on your screen. I want to notice what the plague was. What was Pharaoh's response to the plague? What was the magician's response, if any, if it's mentioned? And then was there an Egyptian deity connected to the plague? And you may never have thought about how the plagues of Egypt actually connect to the Egyptian gods themselves. Right before the last plague, the 10th plague, God says, and this is Exodus 12.10, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. So these judgments are not only against Pharaoh and the people, but they're against the gods of Egypt themselves. Even in the first nine plagues, God's judgments take place in realms supposedly under control of these Egyptian gods or that are in, have to do with animals or places associated with those Egyptian gods. And thus, through these great and mighty judgments, God shows, the true God shows, that the false gods are false, completely useless, completely worthless, completely powerless before him. By the way, though, if you look at steady tools con connected to the plagues, often there'll be one deity connected with each plague. They say, oh, this plague was targeting this deity, or this plague was targeting that goddess or that god. But it's more likely that multiple deities are in view in each plague. Indeed, all the gods and goddesses of Egypt, because there were many. One estimate of the uh, Egyptian pantheon was that there were 1,400 gods 
1,400 gods and goddesses. Multiple deities were often associated with the same area of life or the same aspect in Egyptian mythology. For instance, there are a number of gods associated with the Nile, the sacred Nile River. There are a number of goddesses associated with fertility. But some deities did become more popular and thus more important over time. And these would be some of the deities that you might have heard of, the gods Ra or Horus or the goddess Isis. But all of these gods are being targeted, not just the important ones, with God's judgments on Egypt. And more, even more significantly, there's a certain concept in Egyptian religion that is being absolutely assaulted. And that is the idea of Mat, or it's also pronounced Mayat. I'm going to say Mat. Mat refers to the concept of harmony, order, balance. If you wanted to be righteous, considered righteous in ancient Egypt, it was by embracing Mat, upholding Mat. Your righteousness was determined on whether you maintained and promoted the order of life, your family, and society. Even the gods, Pharaoh included, are responsible for upholding Mat, this cosmic harmony. The gods needed to make, or Pharaoh needed to maintain order in Egypt. The gods needed to maintain order in Egypt and hold back the forces of chaos. This is why it was important to serve and please the gods, according to Egyptian religion, because if they were not properly served, then Egypt would not have its order maintained. The gods could not or would not maintain Mat for Egypt. Now, with all of this in mind, God's judgments take on an even greater significance. They are indeed judgments against the gods of Egypt and against the whole Egyptian religion. They have, or so we could say that these 10 plagues, they are a national and a theological cataclysm for Egypt. But let's look at the first plague. Look at chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. And again, we're just surveying this, so I won't read all of the verses associated with each plague, but look at verses 20 to 23, where we read. So Moses and Aaron did even as Yahweh had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he did not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern, even for this. So what is our first plague? It is the water of Egypt turning to blood. Not just the Nile, but... We see some from other the verses in the context that even water in other places, at least that was on the surface, was turned to blood. And by the way, there's no natural explanation for this. People sometimes like to trot out a natural explanation. They say, oh, it was some algae in the water that made it turn red. And uh, this algae produced an anthrax virus, which caused the frogs to come out of the river. And when the frogs died, it brought flies. It's a pretty complicated and convoluted explanation, but it's totally... Uh, it totally stretches beyond what the text is able to take. It's not consistent with the biblical text, especially when God says, I'm going to do this. 
this is supernatural. It's going to occur when I want it to occur. So no, no, this is not a natural explanation that was just assigned a theological significance. This is what really happened. These were miracles and great judgments of God. And the first one is that the water of the Nile turns to blood. And by the way, why is that appropriate? Why is that an appropriate judgment for Egypt? Who was supposed to be thrown in the Nile? Maybe Moses, along with all the Hebrew boys. And probably some of them were thrown in the Nile and killed. And so the Nile has become blood, this mechanism for killing God's people. What's Pharaoh's response to this plague? It says his heart was hardened. He paid no concern. What was the response of Pharaoh's magicians? Well, they also are able to turn water into blood. Not very helpful, but somehow they're able to do that. And what Egyptian deity was being judged here? Again, many, but one in particular would be the god Happy. Happy was the god of the Nile's flood. He was associated with fertility. He's often depicted in blue because of the Nile River. He was depicted as fat with male and female characteristics to emphasize his abundance, his fertile nature. But after this first plague, the Nile is not bringing fertility. It is bringing death and putrefaction. This is because God is greater than the gods of Egypt. Let's look at the second plague. Exodus chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. Exodus 8, verses 5 to 7, it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So what's the second plague? It's a frog invasion. Frogs everywhere. And what's Pharaoh's response? We didn't read it in the verses we just read, but it appears in the context. Pharaoh at first agrees to release the Hebrews if Moses will entreat Yahweh to remove the frogs. But then look down to verse 15. It says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Notice the phrase there is that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Even though God is ultimately the one hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's also true that Pharaoh was hardening his heart. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they go together. What is the magician's response to this plague? They're also able to make frogs appear. Not get rid of the frogs, but they can make more frogs appear. And what deity is associated with this plague? Again, several, but Hecate or Hect is certainly one. Hecate was the frog goddess, goddess of fertility, goddess of childbirth, usually depicted as a frog or a woman with a frog's head. Uh, frogs were considered a, a sign of abundance, a sign of prosperity in Egypt. Frogs in great numbers would come out of the Nile every time the Nile's fertile floods came in. So the frogs were regarded as a symbol of life and fertility. It was actually forbidden at certain times in Egypt for people to kill frogs. What an irony then. Instead of life and fertility, instead of symbol of holiness, Hecate's frogs bring nothing but trouble here. They are a pest. They are an annoyance all throughout Egypt. They're everywhere. This is the second plague. 
Well, let's look at the third. The third appears in chapter or chapter eight, verses 16 and 17. It reads, then Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. So the third plague, what's the third plague? It's gnats, dust turning into gnats or lice. These are small, almost too small to be seen, little bugs that bite you. And they're coming on man and beast. What's Pharaoh's response to this plague? Verse 19, it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. What's the magician's response? We see it in verses 18 and 19. They try to bring forth gnats from dust, but they cannot. And so they conclude, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They testify that this really is the one God at work. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He doesn't listen to the magicians. Some relevant Egyptian gods for this plague would be Geb and Achor. They are both gods of the earth. They were supposed to bring help from the earth, but that's not what the earth is bringing. It's bringing these small biting insects. If you've ever dealt with lice, or small indistinguishable bugs, you know what a terror they can be. And they're all over Egypt. Even the dust of the earth had become a plague on the Egyptians. But that's only the third. Let's look at the fourth plague. Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 and 24. So still in the same chapter. It says, Now Yahweh said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, so that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. And Yahweh did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. So our fourth plague is the plague of flies or mosquitoes or some biting insects. Now, I hate flies. I hate to hear them buzzing. I hate to see them. They just make everything feel unclean. This is what is all over Egypt. Swarms of flies. If you have one fly in your house, it's annoying. But imagine a swarm. And they're biting. They're everywhere. The sound, I'm sure, is intolerable. But notice there's special protection on the people of Israel. It's possible this was true even of the first three plagues, or maybe those plagues affected areas that the people of Israel were not in. But we're going to see this going forward. God keeps making a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. And this is, again, showing this is not some natural phenomenon. This is an act of God. This is God sending forth mighty judgments. What's Pharaoh's response? Well, at first, Pharaoh offers to let them sacrifice. He says, stay in Egypt, then you can sacrifice. Moses says, no, we, God, God called us to leave Egypt. 
So when Pharaoh's offers refused, he promises to let the Israelites go if Moses will just importune God and have the flies taken away. Moses does so. But once again, what happened before happens again. Pharaoh hardened his heart and he did not let the people go. This is wicked. This is deceptive. And yet this is what God sovereignly ordained. Magicians are not mentioned in this plague. But the particular God involved here is a little unclear in terms of one that's highlighted. Kepri is one offered by Answers in Genesis. He was a God who had actually a bug for a head, a scarab, a beetle. Now, scarabs are not the bugs that are mentioned in particular here. So probably Kepri wouldn't be the God that I would highlight. But regardless, none of the gods of Egypt are able to stop these flies. You can see that chaos is really being unleashed in Egypt. Let's turn to the fifth plague. Fifth plague appears in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Look at those. It says, So Yahweh did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people go. So the fifth plague is a, a targeted plague on Egyptian livestock. Horses, donkeys, camels, sheep, goats, cows, anything that was in the field, God says, was going to die of plague. Pharaoh's response once again, his heart was hardened. Magician is not mentioned here. But one deity certainly exposed by this plague would be the goddess Hathor, a very popular Egyptian goddess. She was the goddess of the sky, goddess of dance, love, beauty, joy, motherhood, foreign lands, mining, music, and fertility. Always got to throw fertility on there. She's depicted as a cow or as a woman with a cow's head. But again, she is not able to prevent the Egyptian cows and other animals from dying. Come on, Hathor, what happened? This is because God is the only God. The sixth plague we see in verses 10 to 12 in Exodus 9. Look at verses 10 to 12. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils, breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. But the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not listen to them, just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. The sixth plague is a plague of boils, or sores, both on people and on animals. Pharaoh's response here, we see that Yahweh specifically is said to harden Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says was hardened. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened. Sometimes it says Yahweh hardened. But these are all true. What's the magician's response? Well, they come back, but they're not really doing anything useful. They got boils too. It says they couldn't even stand before Pharaoh. They couldn't stand before Moses. These great men, these wise men, they also are reduced to nothing. And certainly one of the Egyptian deities that would be Exposed in shame here would be the goddess Isis. You've heard of Isis probably, goddess of health, of marriage, of wisdom, among other aspects. She was extremely popular in ancient Egypt. She subsumed Hathor even somewhat 
this is the thing about mythology, any kind of polytheistic religion, their gods kind of overlap. Sometimes they actually combine. There's like Isis Hathor is a goddess. So Isis would overlap a little bit. Isis was also often depicted as a woman with a throne on her head because she was the mother of Horus, the god of kingship. And her priests, her priestesses were thought to be skilled healers. But this goddess of health and her priests, they are not able to overcome these boils sent by God. They cannot protect the people of Egypt. This is because only God is the true God. The seventh plague. Look at verses 23 to 26. Verse 23. It says, Moses stretched out his hand. Wait, where's verse 23? There it is. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky. And Yahweh, <clears throat> excuse me, Yahweh sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And Yahweh rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. What's the seventh plague? It is a hailstorm. Hail and fire. Now, the fire probably refers to lightning. Remember, ancients didn't have any concept of electricity. So when you see this streak, this bolt come down from the sky, you say, that's fire from heaven. That's probably what's meant here. We have these lightning flashes, these lightning strikes, and the hail, and maybe rain along with it. Pharaoh's response to this plague is interesting. He confesses, again, this is in the context, he confesses that God is the righteous one and that he and his people are the wicked ones. Hey, that's an improvement. Pharaoh also promises to send away the Hebrews once Moses stops the storm. But as soon as the storm stops, Pharaoh sins again, and he hardens his heart. He and his servants, according to verse 34. The magicians may have been included in those servants. A featured goddess of this plague would be the goddess Newt, goddess of the sky. Her body actually was supposed to be the sky. She's sometimes depicted as a woman with a pot on her head or as a cow. But again, Newt is totally unable to protect the Egyptians from this traumatic hailstorm. It was unlike any other storm experienced in Egypt. By the way, you may be noticing that animals keep on occurring, even though all the livestock of Egypt died in an earlier plague. This is because there were some, this is likely because there was some time in between the different plagues. And we'll see that more clearly in just a moment. So it appears the Egyptians were able to obtain more animals. Maybe they took some from the Hebrews who didn't have their animals die, or with some of the wealth they had, they bought other animals in the meantime uh, before the next plague arrived. So this is not a contradiction in the scriptures. But now we turn to the eighth plague. And for this, we go to chapter 10. Chapter 10, look at verse 12, and also verses 16 to 20. So look at chapter 10, verse 12. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. Now flax and barley were destroyed in the hailstorm. I'm just giving this as a, an aside, a parenthesis. But wheat and spelt, they ripen later, about a month later. So this shows that there's a time, there's a little break between the last plague and this next one. 
it seems that there were pauses of various lengths between all the different plagues, even though they're presented pretty on top of each other in our text. Now jump down to verse 16, describing the locusts and what they wrought in Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to Yahweh your God that he would only remove this death from me. He went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to Yahweh. So Yahweh shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the sons of Israel go. So the eighth plague is a gigantic locust swarm. Every green thing and every plant in Egypt is eaten. Now, I don't know about you, I've never lived through a locust swarm. But if you've ever seen videos of locusts, it can be pretty terrifying. They literally bring a cloud of darkness with them because there are so many, and then they just eat everything. Anything that, that is a plant, they will eat. This, of course, is gonna to lead to very serious food problems in Egypt. What's Pharaoh's response? Well, before the plague occurs, actually, he allows the Hebrew men to leave. He says, you men can go, but everyone else has to stay behind. Moses refuses this offer. After the plague, Pharaoh confesses his sin, as we read, and he asks Moses to intercede again. But once Moses does, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh will not let the people of Israel go. What's the magician's response here? They're not mentioned specifically, but we do see in the context that Pharaoh's servants, and they may have included the magicians, probably included the magicians, they actually plead with Pharaoh to just let the Hebrews go. Pharaoh, don't you see that Egypt is ruined? Just let him go. But he doesn't listen to them. Is there a particular God highlighted here? Answers in Genesis suggest Seth, or Set, God of vegetation. Though from my own research, I don't see Set associated with plants. He was actually the god of storms, the god of deserts, the god of chaos, and god of war. Now, the locusts do come from the desert, so Set may have been involved. But again, no gods, none of the gods of Egypt are able to stop these devastating locusts. This brings us to the last plague, the ninth plague that we're going to discuss today. But again, there's another one beyond that. But look at Exodus 10, verses 21 to 23. And then we'll also read verses 27 and 29. So Exodus 10, 21 to 23. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Jump down to verse 27. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again. From the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, You are right, I shall never see your face again. It's the ninth plague. I think you could say rightly that these are getting more and more intense. The ninth plague a plague of darkness, a darkness that can be felt. I do not know what that means, but I'm sure it was very, very frightful for the people of Egypt. 
it lasts for three days. But the places of Israel, the homes of Israel, they have light because this is a supernatural darkness. This is not some ash cloud. This is not even the locust swarm. This is a supernatural darkness. After the plague, Pharaoh agrees to let the Hebrews go if they'll leave their flocks behind. I like Moses' response. He says, we're not going to leave a hoof behind. God has called for all of it to go. Moses refuses, and Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he drives Moses from his presence. One God certainly targeted in this plague is Ra, sun god, and he's one of the most important of the Egyptian deities. Ra was thought to have dominion over all the creation. The Egyptians saw the sun representing light and warmth and growth. It was Ra's own light. So blotting out the sun, bringing darkness, it was a huge blow to Ra, the gods of Egypt, and the Egyptians themselves. Now, we had to walk through that somewhat quickly. But these are, make sure you understand, these are incredible works of God, mighty wonders and judgments. Imagine living through these plagues. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine enduring all these different things, being there in Egypt? These things really happened. And why? God says, God said at the beginning, these were to show forth my greatness, my wonders. He even tells Pharaoh in one of the texts we didn't read, I could have destroyed you already, but you know why I didn't? It's so I could show forth my glory here in this land that you may know and that everyone may know that I am Yahweh. God was showing forth his glory and accomplishing a mighty judgment, a terrifying judgment on Israel's oppressors, but a mighty deliverance for Israel, God's people. God says Pharaoh was raised up specifically for that purpose. By the way, do these judgments remind you of anything else in Scripture? That's right. You go to the book of Revelation, which describes that tribulation period. So if you remember the, the way eschatology plays out, Jesus comes back for his church, snatches them away in the rapture. Then there's a period of seven years of terrible judgments on the earth. And those are what are described in Revelation. And then at the end of that tribulation, Christ, come, Christ comes back as the conquering king to establish his kingdom, that thousand year kingdom. But if you read those judgments in Revelation, some of them sound like what's here. In, in fact, the one about darkness that we see, the ninth plague in Egypt, there is a plague of darkness also in the end times. And it's also a darkness that can be felt. It actually says in Revelation that it causes pain. They nod their tongues because of the pain of that plague of darkness. This is because God is a consistent God. God is a holy, wrathful God against sin and sinners. And he judges Egypt here, and he will judge all sinners, all unrepentant ones, one day in that tribulation period. Of course, there's judgment beyond that. Anyone who does not know God when he dies will also be subject to judgment. And ultimately, that judgment is hell. But we're reminded of God's judgment to come, even when we look at the judgments on Egypt. Now, God is very patient and gracious. He even shows patience and grace throughout this account, he's giving time for the Egyptians to repent, for Pharaoh to repent, to recover. But his patience does not last forever. 
judgment eventually comes. That's why the Bible exhorts us, exhorts you to come to God. Do not remain stubborn in sin because judgment is coming. You may be able to get away with it for a certain amount of time. You may even convince yourself, oh, because I go to church or because I call myself a Christian, I'll be all right. But we must beware. We must beware of challenging God. Pharaoh challenged God, and God said, all right, that's enough. I'm bringing my judgment. God will do the same. God will do the same for us, or he might do the same. You never know what God will do. That's why God says, come now. Come now before God's anger flashes forth. You do not want to challenge God. He is the great God. There is no one like him. He is holy, he is powerful, and he is wrathful against those who oppose him. But yet, look at how gracious, how, how he is a God of vengeance on behalf of his own. All these terrible things that happened in Egypt, they are acts of grace on behalf of God's people. Even in the tribulation period, in the judgments to come, there is a, there is a rejoicing of God's people on that day. They say, God, you are finally bringing the justice that we were crying out for. They were killing your people. They were persecuting your people. And as it says at one time in Revelation, and you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Now, there's an aspect of that, which is like, oh, like I can't even think about that because it's, it's too terror, terrible, too terrorizing. And yet it is good and just of God. Which side of that judgment do you want to be on? Do you want God to be acting on your behalf or against you? It's one of the things that this passage is meant to bring out to us. I'll just list a few other applications. We're pretty much out of time. But some questions, some concepts for you to think about. I have them listed there. God will judge stubborn sin. Come to God before that time. Do not remain stubbornly proud. Instead, be clothed with Christ and know the goodness of God rather than the anger of God. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard today, please email me. We're, we've come to the ninth plague, but the tenth plague is a special plague that would be commemorated in a special way in Israel. And that's what we'll talk about next time. Let me close in prayer. God, you are, as your scripture says, a consuming fire. For those who stubbornly resist, you say, I'm God. I'll do what I want. I'm not going to acknowledge the true God. Oh, Lord, there is terrifying judgment. You have been gracious even to those people, even to us, God. And Lord, for those of us in Christ, you've actually brought us out from that, from being a child of wrath, and you've made us your own child. But God, for anyone for whom that is not true, I pray that you would bring them even today, even this morning, that they'd be rescued from judgment, that they would not experience anything like what Egypt experienced but they would instead experience what you've promised to your people, which is dwelling with you forever in joy. Lord, I pray that the people at Calvary and anyone listening, they would revere you as the God who brought the plagues on Egypt, who with a mighty hand delivered his people from the bondage and oppression that was there. I pray, God, that they would meditate on that. And Lord, that we would all see you more in the way that you ought to be seen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, that's all for this week. See you again next time. Welcome.